want to welcome you, by the way, those of you joining us online, thank you for joining us and being with us today. We are continuing our series called Repairing the Breach, and uh, I'm just going to pause for prayer before we jump in. God, thank you so much. Praying again this morning because we need you, I need you especially. Be with TJ as he is dealing with that cold sore, and God, just please be present with us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Those of you not familiar with our series, this is part five, actually. We've been in this part five. This is the fourth in talking specifically about the Sabbath. The first one in the series was entitled Isaiah's Loud Cry. And um, we're going to be summarizing next, probably the next presentation will probably include a summary because then we're going to talk about the gathered church. How do the principles of Isaiah 58 impact the gathered churches? We come together as a church of God. What, how does Isaiah 58 inform what it means to be the gathered church? So that is probably the next presentation we'll do together on the 22nd. Now today, we're going to continue looking at the story of Jesus and his interaction with the Sabbath. And we're going to start with a story in John 5. I have a confession. I removed several slides related to like the story of, in, in Luke, the Sabbath in Luke, finishing up part of the conversation from Matthew and Mark. On to some exciting stuff in John. So today we are exclusively almost exclusively, in the book of John, and there's more to talk about than I have time. So I'm going to be, try to be respectful of our time this morning and also get as much, make as much progress as we can. Also, after um, today's presentation and future presentations in this series, we're going to have an afterglow. And where you can just I'll open up the floor. So if you have questions, write them down. We'll just have some dialogue for anybody who wants to stay. If you want to leave after, it'll be after the service. So if you want to get out and get on your way, that's perfectly fine. For anyone who wants to stay by and process for a few minutes, we'll be doing that. We're also, TJ and I also going to start a, a, a small group discussion where you can come and we'll sit down and process together. Not so much a teaching format as processing the topic together. We've had some folks interested in getting deeper, and so we'll be doing that. I don't have a specific time, but hoping we can get something on the calendar for later in the month. All right, we're going to begin with this line from John chapter 7. I did one work, and you all marvel. Now, a little question for you, not exactly trivia, but what one work was Jesus talking about? Some of you know the answer because you heard it this morning. Yes, so the one work Jesus was talking about is a miracle in John chapter 5. But before we get to the miracle, we're going to do a little walk in the book of John together. So John chapter 1 is, begins with, anybody remember the first lines of John chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning, in the beginning was the 
Word, and the Word was with God. That's the beginning. John introduces the story of Jesus by scrolling all the way back, pre-creation, all the way back um, to the very beginning to set the stage for Jesus and the incarnation. And then there's a little bit in chapter 1 on the ministry of John the Baptist, and then we come to John 2. What's the main story in John 2? It's one of those, it's the first miracle that Jesus did, and it's done at a festive gathering. Giving you hints. Yes, the wedding at Canaan where he turned the water into wine. That's pretty much it in John chapter 2. That's like the major content. There's a few details interspersed, but that's the big story. John 3, famous conversation with a very famous religious leader in Jesus' time. Nicodemus, nighttime conversation where we get the text, for God so loved the world in that conversation. There are a few other pieces, but that's the major piece of John chapter 3. John chapter 4 is the story of Jesus encountering a woman in a non-Israelite town. Anybody remember that story? The woman at the well outside of Samaria. That's right. What's fascinating is these, and we'll call them these first four chapters, kind of the early ministry chapters. What's fascinating is there is relatively little conflict recorded in these early ministry chapters. Again, that's why I had you remember the stories. What we just talked about is the bulk of the content in those first four chapters. And you'll notice there's not much conflict. Of course it's happening, but it doesn't really show up in the Gospel of John. But chapter 5, a firestorm breaks loose, and that firestorm continues all the way until Jesus' crucifixion, all the way in John chapter 19. There is this kind of major firestorm section between Passion Week, which begins in John 12, and between John 4. So John 5 through 11 is this time of intense conflict. In chapter 5, Jesus intentionally kicks off the conflict. Jesus does so because he wants to communicate the contrast between his character and his Father's character and God's character. I want you to wa watch the story as it unfolds. Jesus intentionally pressing this issue to center stage. Watch how he does it. Here it is, John 5, 1, afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. By the way, I asked you, what was the one miracle that he was being questioned about in John 7? This is that miracle. Inside the city near the Sheep Gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches, Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, on, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and he knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? Let's observe a couple of things. This man had been sick. We don't know how old he is, but he's been sick for how long was Jesus? How old was Jesus when he died? About 33, right? This man had been sick for longer than Jesus has been alive. Just take that into context. This guy has been sick for three, almost four decades. 
Now, if he's sick for one more day, is, is he going to die? Not likely. He's not likely going to die if he's sick for one more day. But for Jesus, one more day was too much. Before we go farther in the miracle, I want to make one other observation. We talked about it previously, but it's this. Every time Jesus does a miracle on the Sabbath around religious leaders, he gets in trouble. Now, this miracle, you'll notice, is in what city? The city of Jerusalem, and it's in the city of Jerusalem on a, during a feast time. So it's not Passover, we know that. We don't know for sure what feast it was. So this is a time when Jerusalem is full of people. So this is important. Jerusalem's full of people, it's a feast time, and Jesus is about to do something. So when Jesus does things, does healings on the Sabbath, especially in Jerusalem, every single one of them is a calculated act because every healing is one more, you might say, nail in his coffin. Every time Jesus heals, he raises the heat and resistance against him. So he has to choose very carefully what he does, when he does it, what are the circumstances, because it's going to get him in trouble, so the trouble must be worth it. Keep that in mind as we come to this story that Jesus is choosing to raise the temperature of the conflict because he has a really important objective he's after. We'll find that out in the story. Let's continue. The man answers Jesus, I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, stand up. Pick up your mat and walk. Now, one note about this text. The people of Jesus' day had relegated the suffering and wounding to the whims of a bubbling pool and washed their hands of doing anything to relieve their suffering. Isn't that a tragic picture? These people make their way somehow, and they camp around this pool. Some of them have been there for years. We don't know if this guy's 38 years of laying by the pool, but some of them have been there for years, and nobody cares about them because they assume that God's going to heal at whim whoever gets in the water first. Now, I don't believe, I, I think this is total legend. I don't actually believe that God was doing any miracle through the water. It just doesn't add up to the way God works with people. Now, maybe he was honoring the faith of individuals under the circumstances, but it wasn't something that God had put in motion because God doesn't heal by Russian roulette. You spin the barrel and see if you get the lucky number. That's not how God works. But I think it's just fascinating that, that the people, the religious leaders, had washed their hands of helping the suffering and were leaving it to a legend the legend of the bubbling pool. Jesus tells him to stand up, pick up his mat, and walk. There's an important note that you should keep in mind that I haven't mentioned yet. It's in verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the what? It is the Sabbath in Jerusalem on a feast day. And we're going to go back to that 
Last sentence on this slide in John chapter 5, verse 8. How many laws had Jesus definitely broken in this act of healing? I'm not talking about God's laws. We're talking about Jewish, Jewish regulations. How many regulations had Jesus broken? Picking up your mat. Picking up your mat. And? Healing. Healing. That's right. For sure, those two were broken. And maybe even the walking, if the man was going to walk farther than Sabbath regulations allowed. So he's breaking three local Jewish laws. By the way, does carrying a mat, is carrying a mat required for, for this guy to be healed? It is not. So Jesus instructs this man to carry his mat because Jesus is deliberately wanting to call attention on the Sabbath to a big, big issue. And let's see what that issue was. I'm going to just note that the man was instantly healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat. By the way, maybe that's a fourth violation because now he's not just carrying it. He rolls the thing up and then he carries it and then he walks, etc. This miracle happened on the Sabbath. That little but is really important. Everything carries along in the story until you get to the but. This miracle happened on the Sabbath. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to what? So I want you to notice this miracle shifts things into high gear. This miracle sets off a firestorm. This is the miracle that Jesus mentions in John 7 in another conflict episode. We know it's a time of feast. We know it's in Jerusalem. And we know that it's on the Sabbath. Jesus has chosen his stage to set the conflict in motion. And he has deliberately chosen the Sabbath to be part of that stage. One of the reasons he chose the Sabbath is because the Sabbath was exhibit A for how unlike God the religious leaders of his day were. The best example of the contrast between God's good character and the self-interest of human beings that was exhibited in the religious world was the way the Sabbath was treated. And the Sabbath, in its original intent, as we've been exploring, was intended as a time to be a gift to human beings, a time to highlight what it means to ultimately flourish as a human being. We'll see more of that in just a little bit. So Jesus goes head-to-head on the Sabbath because the Sabbath has more to do with the character of, with God's good character than perhaps any other piece of the story. And it's also the day that's been buried under pointless, oppressive regulations. We're going to continue the story with this in John 5, 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. We read that text. Here's the next one. In his defense, notice, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Remember, Jesus has deliberately set the stage. 
He's chosen when he's going to show up in Jerusalem. He's chosen where he's going to be on that Sabbath. And he's chosen the miracle he's going to do. And he's added insult to injury by asking the man or instructing the man to carry his bed. Because Jesus wants this conversation to happen. And that conversation is a conversation about revealing the character of God. I find it fascinating that Jesus kicks off his work of revealing or kicks into high gear his work of revealing the character of God in contrast to the misunderstandings present in his day. He chooses the day to do that as the Sabbath with a miracle. This is the kickoff of this high conflict section of text that ends with the resurrection of Lazarus. Let's continue with the story. John 5, we're going to continue into verse, yeah, ignore the John 7. We're actually going to go to John 5 and verse 17. We just want to remind ourselves again, my father is always doing what? Working. And to this very day, he's doing, Jesus says, I am working too. So what is God's work? What's God's work? Jesus had answered that early when he introduced his ministry in Luke 4. We saw this before, but we're going to see it again just as a quick reminder. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And then these words, Jesus said to them, Today this scripture is what? Fulfilled in your hearing. So what is the work of God? The work that Jesus was engaged in, same work we found in Isaiah 58. This work, look at it there, the work of preaching the gospel to the poor, healing the brokenhearted, bringing liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, setting at liberty to the oppressed, proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. This is God's work. And it's God's work, as we saw in Isaiah 58, associated directly with the Sabbath. So Jesus puts his foot into the game, pushes the contrast of God's character with the misunderstandings of the day, pushes it to the forefront to bring the people's attention to the contrast between God's good character of loving and caring for people versus the self-interest that, that was prolific among the religious leaders of the day. Now we continue in John 5. Verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him. Well, why did they try harder to kill him? Well, because of this. He not only broke the Sabbath, which we saw, but in that statement where he said he and his father were working together, that statement was a declaration of equality to God and that raised the temperature even higher because they said he is making himself equal with God. 
So notice, Jesus chooses Sabbath and a healing to kickstart this firestorm of conflict about God's character and his identity. That's interesting in this text that the religious leaders accuse Jesus, a man trying to lift himself up to being God. That's their big complaint, right? In Jesus' response, he actually flips it. Notice this. Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Notice, the religious leaders had said, Jesus, you're you're this guy trying to make yourself equal to God. Jesus said, actually, the truth is, I get all my cues from God, so the person you see is actually the product of all the cues I get from my Father, not the other way around. In other words, everything you see me doing here, the setting at liberty of the captives, the proclamation of good news, the, the healing of giving sight to the blind, all that you see me do is because I see my Father doing that. And my Father and I are working for the uplifting of human beings, for the restoring of human wholeness. And we're in this together. So whatever you see me doing, it's because I'm following what I learned from my Father. Do you see how Jesus is putting the truth about God's character out front? Let's continue. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him what? What does that say? He will show him what kind of works? Greater works than these that you may marvel. The greater work he went on to describe was the power to raise the dead. That power was exercised in the story of Lazarus. So in John 5, Jesus sets the stage, pushes into the forefront this conversation about God's character in contrast to the self-interest of the religious leaders. And then on the other side of that conversation, he concludes with the resurrection of Lazarus validating his claims as the Son of God, as equal to God, and as fully in his rights to define and declare the character of God. That's this 5 to 11 section where Jesus pushes out into center stage the reality that he has come to unveil the heart of God in that time and that national stage. We're going to continue the story now with this, uh, let's see, we're going to skip down to, well, actually, we'll just go ahead and go to 36. I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Why is that so important? The works, which were what? Luke 4. Healing, liberating, encouraging, comforting. Jesus is, why is it important? Because those works demonstrate his connection to the heart of God 
because God's heart leans toward humanity. The Sabbath, as we talked about last week, this gift to humanity was given so that human beings could experience the highest point of flourishing. And that highest point of flourishing is relationship with God. It's knowing God. That's why when the Sabbath comes, God is making himself available to Adam and Eve for fellowship. And that fellowship enables them to be good stewards of the planet. I'm going to skip down to a, uh, let's see, we're going to skip down to verse 1 of John. So just pause what we've talked about so far. Jesus healing, Jesus demonstrating or, or defending his God identity, his oneness with the Father, and declaring that his life was a life of good works that were the, simply the carrying out of his Father's purpose on earth. This whole thing had been introduced in John 1, and I want you to follow me over the next few slides because what we're going to see is that when we come to the end of Jesus' life, we find the Sabbath again at center stage. Remember, John 5, Jesus defending his character, defending God's character, is kicked off with a Sabbath miracle. So we go back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with who? With God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made in Him. Pardon me? Was what? Yes. And life that lightens every man, right? Important. The reason we're going back to John chapter 1 is this. Jesus is the creator, which means on the seventh day, who's responsible for that creation? Yes, and specifically the Son. Jesus created the Sabbath, and the intent of the Sabbath was for human beings to experience intimacy with God. That was the intent, to experience that intimacy, and then through that experience to disperse or channel that blessing to the rest of the created world. Then I want you to notice the last sentence again. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Keep that in mind as we continue through a few texts. The next one we're going to go to is in John 10. I'm sorry, John 19. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, what did he say? It is what? Finished. Bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus as John introduces him, is the creator. His incarnation is to begin a kind of creative work we call redemption. So Jesus... Human beings in the fall 
compromised their capacity for closeness to God. Remember that first Sabbath was spent with Adam and Eve, right? God making himself available, fully available to these newly minted humans. And and then the fall comes and Adam and Eve are sent where? Out of the garden. And then we find as we go down in history that God says, make me a sanctuary so I can dwell among them. But there were kind of, there was this protective zone around that close contact because human beings couldn't survive being in his presence. In other words, the thing that God was dreaming of had designed human beings for this close intimacy with him. The fall was undermining it. So when Jesus comes back or comes to earth, his intent is to make possible what sin has damaged and made impossible. That's intimacy with God, ultimate restored intimacy. When Jesus is on the cross, he's finished a specific work. And that work is revealing the character of God to human beings and drawing them in. He's also finished the work of carrying the cost for the break that sin had introduced. And then this, John 19, 31, Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. When they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. That first Sabbath in creation week, who is present to be with Adam and Eve? God is, right? God is with them. And then we come to this passion week. It is the only 24 hours, little over 24 hours in the entire history of the universe where God is absent in a sense. Remember the Sabbath represents God's desire and represents the highest realization of human flourishing and that's intimacy with God. The creator was so interested that human beings experience that intimacy, that he was willing to take himself out of the picture to assure that human beings never had to be in a place outside of that intimacy again. Look at this text in John 6. John chapter 6, verse 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, and I shall, which I shall give for the life of the world. We're going to wrap up pretty quick, but here's what I want you to see. Fellowship was the objective that God wanted human beings to ultimately experience. Fellowship with him. The Sabbath was created as this gift of time to connect with Him and and to bless one another in the context of flourishing in relationship with God. God was so committed to that privileged relationship 
that he was willing to give himself to create a new kind of life, new spiritual life, which John 3 says, Jesus said, is being born again. Jesus gave his life to bring about a new era in the human story that would mean that never again would human beings have to live separated. Now the breach had been bridged and so eternity future was full of the hope that never again would this separation brought on by sin be a permanent fixture in reality. I put it like this in a summary slide and maybe this will help put the pieces together as I wrap up. Notice this. If knowing God is the highest realization of human experience and this is the reality of the Sabbath, excuse me, this is the reality the Sabbath represents, then Jesus died to assure the very thing that the Sabbath has enshrined all along. Thus, the Sabbath and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus are not passing connections, but bound by an unbreakable bond. In the last few minutes, I want you to think about this. Does Jesus have to die in AD 27? He could have died the year before, right? Or the year before that. He could have died the year after. There's something special about AD 27, and it's this. Passover and Friday fall on the same day. Jesus deliberately dies in that year, so his death occurs on a Friday and on Passover. Those two events happen simultaneously because one represents liberation from Egypt, the other one is this moment of, of kind of the finalizing of, a, of recreating a new humanity with Jesus resting in the grave absent from the story because he's given his life so human beings don't have to be absent from the story. So human beings can once again enter into flourishing relationship with God. And then we have the resurrection where for the first time, a human being who experienced the impact of sin is now fully restored. They, Jesus is referred to as the first fruits. He finished his work on Friday rested and then rose, having successfully brought into being a whole new era in human history, having repaired the breach between human beings and God so that the ultimate promise of the Sabbath, fellowship with God, can define the rest of human existence into eternity. Notice this final text, Revelation chapter 21. I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. The Sabbath is holding up that longing of God for deep connection to human beings. And because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the future of humanity is this future in which God and human beings dwell in intimate connection. That's how the story ends and begins, in a sense, as that moment 
represents an eternity future where God and human beings never again experience the separation that we're still wrestling with and recovering from now. Let's pray. God, we've covered a lot today, and I just ask you, you would help us to understand and see the incredible work of Jesus and how the Sabbath represents this grand opportunity for human beings to enter deep, flourishing fellowship with you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's message. For more content or to connect with us, visit us online at brunswickadventist.church.com